It's my privilege to introduce Mr. Philip Yancey again. I'm going to give a rather short introduction to give him uh, the full amount of time. Mr. Yancey is the author of 13 books. I said 12 on Wednesday, but his newest one came out about three weeks ago. And it is on the topic of grace. What's so amazing about grace? He shared in several different settings that it takes about two years to write one book and that he spends about 40% of his time uh, researching and thinking and then uh, he spends uh, another percentage of his time outlining and he outlines just about every sentence, he tells me. And then he spends his time writing in which his family disappears and leave him alone because he becomes a bear during that time. So he tries to keep that short. His book on Jesus is, in my opinion, uh, the best that I've read in the last decade on the life of Jesus Christ. And I think a tremendous, it's called The Jesus I Never Knew. If you've not read it, I strongly urge you to read it. It will drive you back to the Jesus of the Gospels and hopefully drive you back to the Gospel itself, which is Jesus, God's gift to us in love. He's the editor-at-large of Christianity Today. He's... Uh, written many, many articles, too many to mention. You can find him uh, listed on the internet with hundreds and hundreds of articles, many books, a conference speaker as well. But his great love is his love for Christ and his desire to serve him. Let's welcome Mr. Philip Yancey. Just take your time. Hello again. You know, I was thinking about how I used to feel when I had to go to chapel at a Christian college and kind of reminded me of a friend of mine who's a teacher and English teacher taught writing. He gave the assignment one time to his class, an open assignment with the line, if I had one hour left to live, I would, and then the, the kids could fill in whatever uh, they would do with one hour left to live. Well, he was at home that night with his wife reading through the test papers, and most of them were obviously brown-nosing him, you know. If I had one left life, one hour left to live, I would listen to Mozart and read Plato. Yeah, right. Um, but he found one that, that just stood out from the rest. It said, it said, if I had one hour left to live, I would spend it in your class. And he thought, now there is a brilliant student. <laughs> What insight, what perspicacity. He called his wife over and he said, look at this, I just want you to show. You know, I, I work hard as a student and it finally, once in a while, it just comes through uh, with my students. And she looked at it and she said, wow, that is pretty good. If I had one hour left to live, I would spend it in your class. And she had a little better vision than he did and she noticed that there was an asterisk. At the bottom it said, please turn over. Turned it over and they had one more line. If I had one, life, one hour left to live, I would spend it in your class. And on the other side, it would seem like eternity. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt about required chapels, actually. Uh, I know some of you think, think you're from conservative backgrounds. Let me tell you about conservative backgrounds. Uh, the church I grew up in, we were worried about liberal elements at Bob Jones University. <laughs> and um, to show you how serious these people were, 
when my brother decided to go to a college, Wheaton College. Have you heard of that school? No. The, the Westmont of the Midwest? Yeah. Or maybe they should change the name to Midwestmont. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> Well, when my brother decided to go to Wheaton College, most parents would think, well, isn't that great? Little Johnny's going to a nice school like Wheaton. These folks were mean folks, and they thought Wheaton was liberal. They said it would be worse to go to a place like Wheaton than to go to Harvard. At Harvard, they don't even pretend to believe in Wheaton. They use the, the words, and they study the Bible, but they come out, you know, these liberals. So uh, this church, and it's not funny, actually, uh, <laughs> if you grew up in that environment... Uh, this church did two things. They, they got a warrant from a federal judge to arrest for kidnapping his friend who was going to give him a ride to Wheaton. So he, had to, he took Delta Airlines instead. Uh, and then they did something that, that the tragedy is still being worked out. Uh, they said that they would pray every day that he would be in a terrible automobile accident and either die to be taken off the earth for doing such a terrible rebellious act or preferably be paralyzed for life so that he would have to lie there, look at the ceiling and realize what a terrible rebellious thing he had done going to Wheaton College. Tragically, that prayer didn't quite come true in the way they prayed it, but it did come true two weeks before graduation. He dropped out of Wheaton instead of graduating and committed himself to an insane asylum and has never been the same since. That's the home. That's the church I grew up in. And I, as I look back now, I think I became a writer, a Christian writer, in an attempt to reclaim words that were soiled and abused. Uh, they would use words like, God is love, but it sounded like God is wrath to me. They would use a word like grace, but it looked a lot like law to me. And once I did understand that God is not the God that I was taught in childhood, that God is a God of grace and love, I wanted to devote my life to reclaim those words for the kingdom. I found, I went to two different Christian colleges, actually, and I found that, oddly enough, a Christian college isn't necessarily the best place to learn about grace. Uh, every school is, a, is an ungrace institution. They grade you and they make you take SAT tests. They give you grades. They don't accept you for who you are. They accept you for how well you do and whether you pay your bills. Uh, and in a Christian institution, I found they add a, another layer of ungrace. It, it, inevitably, it seems, this ladder of spirituality develops so that these people are more spiritual than those people. And a whole institution of, of ungrace kind of grows up. It was encouraging for me to discover that, uh, that God is a God of grace. I found that Christian schools also weren't very good at treating deviants. I know there are some of you sitting here who are only coming to chapel because you've used already your maximum number of cuts in the semester. <laughs> there are some of you, when people ask you where you go to school, you say Santa Barbara, hoping they'll think UCSB instead of Westmont. Um, 
I, I know what that was like because I was one of you. And actually, it was, it was a great healing moment in my life to read the Bible and find out the kind of people that God liked. I, I think he liked deviants. Um, he chose a man whose name was Sneak. Jacob was the, the word, but it really meant Sneak. And God wrestled with him all night. And he changed his name to Struggle. And then God named his people the children of struggle. I like that. I look at, at, at Jonah and Jeremiah and Job and God's favorites. I look at the people that he chose in the New Testament. Peter, a man who, at the moment of Jesus' greatest need, cursed him and said, I never knew that. Or Paul, a man who made his living torturing Christians. I get mailings from Amnesty International. I, I get these pictures of people in third world countries with cigarette burns and bruises and electrodes attached to their body. And I think, how can anyone do that to another human being? What kind of person could do that? And then I realize the Apostle Paul was the kind of person who could do that to another human being. But when God looked at him, he didn't look at him as a vile, unredeemable wretch. He looked at him as my missionary to the Gentiles my apostle of grace. I love the word grace. I call it the last best word because most of the great theological words like atonement, redemption, have lost their meaning now. We don't even have S&H redemption centers anymore. Um, in a time of slavery, that was one of the most beautiful words. Now no one knows what it means. But grace, people still use I was returning a rental car the other day, Hertz rental car. I was running late to catch a plane, 55 minutes late. And I thought, oh, no, they're going to charge me another 35 bucks just because I'm 55 minutes late. And when I was supposed to turn it in, I showed up kind of grouchy, worried about my plane. And the clerk runs it through the time clock. And I said, well, do I, do I owe any more? She said, no, no. That, I said, well, I'm late. She said, no, no, there's a one-hour grace period. And I stopped and said, well, what is grace? And <laughs> this Hertz clerk looked very puzzled. This wasn't in her training, you know. And she said, she said, well, I don't know. It just means that even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to. <laughs> I thought that's actually pretty good. Definition of grace. Uh, amazing grace. Um, and we use it all the time. We call athletes graceful. We leave gratuities. We, the piano, they play grace notes. Um, my favorite use of the word is, is an official government use. When the government of the United States catches a spy, they kick him out of the country and officially declare him persona non grata, a person without grace. Seems to be a little arrogant of the United States government to decide a person is without grace, but, you know, that's the way we are. Gordon MacDonald, a friend of mine who knows a fair amount about grace, said that grace is really the, the only contribution that the church has to the world. Everything we can do, the world can do. We can feed the hungry, the world can feed the hungry. We can build houses for homeless, the world can do that. We can heal the sick, the world can do that. There's only one thing that only the church can do, and that is dispense grace. It's a gift of God. You don't find it anywhere else. And it concerns me that I don't think we're doing a very good job I started a little personal survey not long ago when I would sit on an airplane 
uh, next to someone I didn't know. We'd start casual conversation, and then I would ask the person, now, when I say the words evangelical Christian, what comes to mind? <laughs> well, mostly they talked about anti-pornography, you know, anti-gay, uh, anti-abortion, anti-Disney, uh, um, <laughs> A lot of antis, or they would name Moral Majority, which was disbanded about five years ago, or Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, people like that. Not one time, try this yourself, not one time has anyone ever said any answer that was in any way reminiscent of grace. How sad, I thought. I tell the story in my book, really the reason I wrote this book on grace came from the story where a friend of mine in Chicago, who works with the down and out, was dealing with a woman who was as down and out as anyone he'd ever met. She had a drug habit. She needed about $150 a day just to stay alive. And she got sick. No, she was a prostitute. No one would pay her. She found she could rent out her daughter, who was two years old, and make $150 in an hour instead of a night. And she came to my friend and in, in, in tears, sobbing, told him this tragic story. My friend said, stop, stop, he's becoming legally liable, even as she tells him the story. She ha he has to report her. And he says, in this terrible time, did you ever think of going to the church for help? And he said, I'll never forget the look of total naive shock that crossed her face. And she said, church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. And that story stabbed me because I was in the process of writing a book about Jesus and I realized that's exactly the kind of person who would immediately have gone to Jesus as a refuge. Not because she thought he would approve of her behavior, oh no, but because she knew he was a place for people in desperate need. And I, I went through the Gospels and you can almost draw a line. The more ungodly, undesirable, unrighteous a person is, the more comfortable they felt around Jesus. The woman at the well, the people with leprosy, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, the outcasts, the Romans even. And the more godly, righteous, together a person was, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the more threatened they were by Jesus. What have we done as his church? We've turned that upside down so that now people in desperate need don't think, oh, I'll go to church for help. They think, church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Church is populated by people who dress well and smile and have nice family values. And what's happened? What's happened? Why are we not like Jesus? I keep going back to this word grace. There's a phrase that I, I see used both by Paul and Peter, a lovely phrase. He says they both say that we are to be grace dispensers or administers. And an image comes to my mind when I read that phrase. It's an image in my grandmother's bureau drawer. <laughs> she, she had, my grandmother's very old. She turns 100 in September next year. And uh, she, she, she lived before spray cans, if you can imagine such a thing. <laughs> and she used to get her perfume, not in, in spray cans, but in this thing called a, a perfume atomizer, big rubber bulb and a little nozzle, and she'd put the perfume in there and squeeze the bulb, and then the pressure would force these drops out. And it doesn't take, you wouldn't need a bucket full of perfume to change the complexion of this room. Just a few drops would do. Wouldn't be a bad idea, actually. Um, 
But that, that's the image that comes to mind when I think of dispensing grace. You know, Jesus says, you don't need a pound of salt for a pound of meat. Just a sprinkling will do. Just a little bit of yeast in the dough. Just a few grains of wheat in the, in the field of weeds. That's how the church grows. That's how grace grows. Uh, that's what the, the kingdom should be doing to all of society. The smallest seed in the garden becomes a great tree, and the birds of the air come and nest in it, he said. Instead, I, I get another image from Christians. It's a different kind of dispenser. I call it the moral exterminator. <laughs> there's a spot of evil. <laughs> Got it. Oh, no, there's another one. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but that's not grace. That's not dispensing grace. Jesus told some stories about grace. One story is, is given in three of the Gospels. My, my favorite version actually isn't in any of those Gospels. It was in the Boston Globe in June of 1990. It's a true story of a woman who was engaged to be married. She and her fiancé went downtown to the Hyatt Hotel in Boston. And they planned the wedding. They chose the china, the silver, the crystal, the invitations, the flowers. And, and they... The whole thing was costing $26,000. They were going to do it right. So they put down 50%, $13,000, and went home. And about three weeks later, the day the invitations were supposed to hit the mail, that jerk of a fiancé called her and said, You know, I've been thinking this is a pretty big commitment. I'm wondering maybe if we're taking this a little too fast, maybe we ought to slow down. He canceled the wedding. She went back to the Hyatt and the manager couldn't have been more understanding. She had had a broken engagement herself, but she said, I'm really sorry. You signed a contract, and the contract says that you only get 10% of your down payment back. You paid 13000 You could either pay another 13000 and have your party, or, or I can only give you 1300 back. Well, this woman thought about it. It was a shock. She actually had been in some pretty hard times herself. She had been homeless. She had lived in a shelter, and she said, I'm going to... I'm going to do something. I'm going to have a party. And she came up with 13000 more dollars, and she scheduled a party such as Boston had never seen before. <laughs> she sent out invitations to every homeless shelter, rescue mission, Salvation Army Center, and said, invite these folks to my party. The only change she made was in the menu. She changed the menu in honor of the groom, she said, to... Boneless chicken. <laughs> and that night in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in, in, in Boston had a party where tuxedo-clad waiters with white gloves served trays of champagne glasses to, to grizzled old senior citizens with snaggly teeth leaning on aluminum walkers, to bums who were used to eating cold pizza peeled off of cardboard, pulled out of a Dempsey dumpster behind a restaurant. And that night, those folks who didn't deserve a party dined on chicken cordon bleu and chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band sounds all night long. Jesus says, that's what grace is like. It doesn't come to the people who deserve it. They're too busy for one more party. Their social calendar is full. It comes to the people who don't deserve it. Jesus told another story about a young girl who grew up in Sonoma, California. 
she had a nice middle class upbringing. Everybody was kind of jealous of her, but they just didn't understand. Her parents were so strict and provincial. They didn't understand. I mean, they objected to her nose ring and the grunge music she listened to. And one day, she was 15 years old, one day she acted on a plan that she had been planning for years. She crept out the window and she ran away. And there are a lot of places she figured her parents would look, L.A., uh, San Francisco. This one place she figured they'd never look, Salt Lake City. Who would run away to Salt Lake City? <laughs> but that's where she went. She met a man there her first day who was nicer to her than anyone had ever been. He drove the biggest car she'd ever seen. He gave her these pills that made her feel great. He put her in a penthouse in a hotel, and she was living high on the hog. She could click on movies anytime she wanted, order room service. She was only 15. She was underage, and he taught her a few things that men like, and, and she did well. She did very well for about six months. But she got sick, and no one would pay for her services anymore. It got cold. It gets very cold in Salt Lake City. She was out on the streets to stay warm. She would curl up on the heating grates outside the department stores downtown. She never got much sleep, a 15-year-old girl on the streets. Every time she heard footsteps, she'd wake up, clutch the knife she always kept with her. And one night, she was lying there huddling with an old coat and newspapers pulled over her, cardboard boxes trying to stay warm, shivering, overdue for drugs. It was as if she was hallucinating. She, she had a vision of, of October in Sonoma when all the vineyards turned brilliant reds and, and, and dark browns and gold. She had a golden retriever. and She used to take him out to the vineyards with her frisbee and throw the frisbee and the retriever. Hour after hour would chase it up and down the beautiful rows of vineyards. And suddenly she realized, you know, my dog back home, my dog lives better than I do. She called home. There was an answering machine and she hung up and she called the next morning and there was an answering machine again and she hung up and the third time she left this message, Dad, Mom, it's me and I, I know you probably don't even know I'm alive but I was thinking about maybe coming home and I didn't, you know, I understand but uh, the bus will get there about midnight tomorrow and, and if there's a place then, you know, maybe I'll see you and if not, I'll just keep on, maybe go to Canada. She realized later what a stupid plan that was. What if they were away and on holidays somewhere and they wouldn't even get her message? It's a long time on a bus to get from Salt Lake City to Sonoma, all the way across the mountain passes into San Francisco, the transfer. She used that time to practice a speech. Dad, I'm sorry. It's my fault. Now I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It was hard even to practice the word. She hadn't apologized to anybody in a long time. That night, about midnight, when the bus pulled in, the air brakes squeaked. She had a hundred scenarios in her mind of what she would find in that station, but not one was what she did find. Fifteen minutes, folks, fifteen minutes, the bus driver announced. Fifteen minutes to decide the rest of her life. She got out of the bus, she walked in, and there was her mother, and her dad, and four aunts, and 12 cousins, and a grandmother, 40 people in all, 
They had party hats. They had ridiculous noisemakers. And they had, somebody had paid for a, a banner, a computer-generated banner, all across the concrete block wall of the Sonoma bus station. And it said two words. Welcome home. Welcome home. In Jesus' version of the story, it says, And they returned to the house and began to make merry. The girl started her apology. Dad, I'm sorry. It's all my fault. Will you forgive me? Hush, child, hush. We've got no time for apologies. There's a party waiting at home. You're late. Welcome home. Welcome home. Grace is the most surprising, twisting, unexpected ending word in the English language. It's not about fairness. It's about grace. We deserve God's wrath. We get his love. We deserve God's punishment. We get his forgiveness. We deserve a diet of bread and water. We get a banquet at the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston. We deserve a juvenile detention hall. We get a party. Welcome home. Welcome home. Grace means there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics. (laughs) And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. It means that an infinite God already loves you as much as a God can possibly love you. I wish the church would recall that kind of grace, would dispense that kind of grace. I've seen it happen. We have proud moments. I've seen great grace dispensers. I think of William Booth, a man who would go to downtown London with his wife who taught a Bible study, and this was a hundred years ago. Things were pretty bad. One out of every five buildings in the east end of London was a, was a, a bar, a pub. There were no rules against child drinking then, and most of the bars had a little stool that five-year-old kids would climb on and drink straight gin. Their fathers would drink everything they had earned that week. And William Booth said, you know, this isn't right. He worked with some of these people. Some of them became Christians, but no church would accept them. So he formed his own church. If you held a contest for the least likely name of an organization, you'd come up with the name he chose, Salvation Army. (laughs) I mean, but it's the largest charity in the United States. When any disaster strikes, their trucks are the first ones on the scene. They've been dispensing grace for a hundred years. I think of a man I worked with very closely on three books, Dr. Paul Brand. Brilliant surgeon, won every award you can think of. He spent the best years of his life among the lowest of the low. I don't know who you are, whether you're a minority race or whether you're gay or who you are, but I guarantee you, you are no lower than the people Dr. Brand worked among. People with leprosy in the untouchable caste in India, it's as low as it gets on the planet. And in that environment, Dr. Brand, this brilliant surgeon, spent his life dispensing grace. I've never met a more grace-filled person. That's the environment he founded. I think of Cicely Saunders, a woman who was a social worker and worked in a hospital, and then she became a nurse, and she was appalled at the way people treated the dying. She was a Christian. She headed the Billy Graham rally in in England in the 1950s. But she was appalled because doctors, as soon as someone was diagnosed as a terminal patient, 
would kind of ignore them. They'd stick their head in and say hi, but they'd no longer spend time with them. And, and they never told them, you're dying, and let them work that out. She came up with a plan for how to treat the dying, but nobody would listen to a nurse. And they told her, if you're going to get doctor's attention, you've got to become a doctor. So this woman in her 40s went back to medical school, became a doctor. She has never practiced medicine one day. She did it just to get the platform. And she founded a hospice, St. Christopher's Hospice, the first hospice in modern times since the Crusades. And the entire hospice movement, 2000 in the United States alone, came out of Cicely Saunders' Christian commitment that we need to care for the dying in a different way. I think of Millard Fuller. Millard was a great entrepreneur in Alabama. He had a racket going in his high school. He would get the the lists of all the kids in the school in their birthdays. He'd call their parents and he would say, little Susie's having a birthday on Wednesday and we have a service where we'll cook her a cake and sing happy birthday, the whole school. Would you want to do that for your daughter for $5? Now what parent is going to turn him down? He was practically a millionaire by the time he got out of high school. And then he was driving along the farms of Alabama and he noticed people lived, people sat on these very hard steel tractor seats. So he said, I'm going to make tractor cushions. And he made another million on tractor cushions. Made a lot of money, but he was not very happy. His marriage was on the rocks. And he went to a person who was a wise person. He said, oh, you need to go to Koinonia Farms in Georgia and meet a man named Clarence Jordan. He'll tell you what to do with your life. So they did, Millard and Linda. And Clarence said, well, uh, uh, Jesus said, if you're rich, you should sell everything you have. And Millard said, everything? Yeah, everything. So he did. (laughs) He went back and gave away everything he had. He came back to Millard and said, well, I did. Now what? Oh, you sold it all? Yeah. Well, let's pick a goal. Uh, What would be a good way to serve the world? How about, you know, there are a lot of people who don't have a place to sleep. How about if you set a goal of building a house for everybody who doesn't have a house? Millard said, that's a big goal. (laughs) Clarence said, well, don't you think Jesus would want people to have a roof over their head? And Millard Fuller started Habitat for Humanity. And every year about 100,000 houses around the world are built because of his efforts. I was on a radio program once with Millard and this woman called in who was incensed. Jewish woman, she said... What is this? I've been given to Habitat for Humanity for years, and I got this brochure, and it had all this Jesus talk. Are you one of these Jesus organizations? And Miller, the old Alabama boy, says, Ma'am, you don't have to be a Christian to live in one of our houses, and you don't have to be a Christian to work for us, but ma'am, the truth is the reason I do what I do and the reason most of our workers do what they do is because we're trying to be like Jesus. And we think he's pretty unhappy with all the people who don't have a roof over their head. These are grace dispensers. They're people who give themselves away. You'll learn many things here at Westmont College, and you'll forget many of those things. You'll hear many chapel messages here at Westmont College, and you'll forget many chapel messages. I hope that whatever you do, in your time here. I hope that you learn grace because if you ever experience it, if you ever encounter it, you won't forget grace.